All right, welcome back to the Diabolical Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kane. Uh, today with me, I've got the creators of Darkest Dungeon and Darkest Dungeon 2, which is coming out later this year on the Epic Game Store in early access. Uh, Darkest Dungeon came out a few years ago, and it just always stuck with me. It's just one of the most unique RPGs I've played in the last few years. Uh, I know it had wild success and uh, allowed Red Hook Studios to pursue a sequel. They also got some... Um, some of that sweet, sweet Epic Games money to bring it to the Epic Game Store where Darkest Dungeon 2 will enter early access sometime in 2021. Uh, so, without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Alright, all right. hey guys, thanks uh, for showing up on this podcast and for this interview and... Um, uh, my name is Eric Kane, uh, and can you can you guys introduce yourselves? I'm Tyler Sigmund. I'm um, co-founder of Red Hook and uh, design director. And I'm Chris Barassa, the other co-founder and uh, creative director. Great. And um, you guys are best known, I believe, for uh, Darkest Dungeon, which is a really cool uh, sort of dark and grim turn-based RPG. It came out uh, a few years ago. Would that be 20? Yeah, it's old now. 2016. 2015 early access. Yeah, right. Uh, 2016 uh, when full release. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it is. It's like a classic at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's in school now. Like, it's got its own. <laughs> it's like retro. Yeah. Wow. That's rude. I'm out. I've already got the gray hair. I don't need the digs from you. <laughs> Freaking journalists, man. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I remember playing this for the first time um, when it came out, and um, it was super addictive and mildly frustrating, and uh, just a really cool art style, great sound, um, and it popped back up on my radar recently because I was thinking about the sequel, which I want to get to in a bit, but um, maybe we could talk a little bit about kind of where the idea for this game came from and kind of the story uh, behind you know the game and the studio. Wow. Yeah, I'll hand it off to Chris in a sec because he's the he was the genesis of the idea. But I think kind of a neat background point was that he and I had been trying to like work together. We worked together at a studio in the past and uh, he and I were friends and we kind of shared a lot of creative ambitions. And we kept uh, meeting up while we were working other studios, talking about games to make together, maybe. And we come up with something and talk, talk about it and get kind of hyped. And then a month later, we'd forget about it. And then... Um, one day he showed up with his notebook. <laughs> this sounds like a, a fairy tale beginning here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. As Tyler said, we we would always just chat about games and movies and stuff. And um, I'm an artist, so I was carrying a sketchbook around to other other jobs and places around town. And I guess it just kind of got born out of this central idea that, like a lot of games, they um, they measure your power as a player in terms of like your visual representation of your gear and your ability to smite and really seemed kind of obvious, but they overlook um, what happens to the smiter after enough smiting, you know? And mm -hmm. so just kind of got stuck on this idea that if I was given like a magical sword or something that looked all awesome, much like your Conan sword behind you um and an actual like zombie was like shambling towards me or whatever i don't know that i would be like brave enough to actually fight it you know i don't know that tyler would be brave enough to actually fight it 
I'm uh, pretty sure I'm bright. I, I would certainly fight it, but I, the, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So it really we sort of started thinking about heroism as a as sort of like the exception, not the rule. And these big moments of bombast that are sort of become the backbone of power fantasy video games are actually really quite rare. Um, and that you know more often than not people people fail and it's it's the consistent failure and struggle punctuated by moments of like clarity and and direct uh, action that makes those moments so exciting um and i think you know some some movies and and some games can kind of fall prey to like the one-upmanship and the escalation where you know like man of steel after you've seen the first three or four buildings fall down and you realize there's like 40 minutes left in the movie, all they can do is make even more buildings fall down and you just get desensitized to it. And then you expect it. And then it doesn't feel like a movie unless buildings are falling down everywhere. So we tried to sort of take this idea of like the sword arm and not the sword and, and build an RPG up from, from a different fundamental set of assumptions. That being that, you know, power and empowerment is quite rare and that, uh, stress and suffering and getting worn down is usually the norm would be the norm for this type of person in this type of life. Yeah. I think like that resonated a lot too with tabletop gaming. You know, if you've played any pen and paper RPGs um, and had a good DM and kind of interesting players who really leaned into the characters. Um, I think you have those types of experiences, you know, because like I remember when I first started playing like D and D, you know, you're just obsessed with getting 18 double zero strength and that's really fun because it's just kind of a game about rolling dice and cutting orc heads off. But then when you have a DM that kind of challenges you to think about like, no, what is your character really like? And what, you know, make your saving throw versus fear. Well, there's two ways you can look at that is just like, oh, the dice failed me. Or you could be like, oh, this is like actually a moment where, you know, this person is facing this incredibly tough monster and wants to live. And so I think like the idea of taking a turn-based, a really solid turn-based like dungeon crawler and then putting in this idea that the heroes have their own little desires, they want to survive, you know, um, and then that like interesting heroism kind of comes from the the everyman sort of approach. Like I think Chris and I, like he was talking about movies. Um, it's just not that exciting if, if a character has no flaws, you know, um, it's a given. Oh, why aren't they fighting the dragon? Why don't they just walk up and cut the dragon's head off? Uh, it's way more interesting when you you know that they think they're going to die or they're willing to risk it all for their loved one or whatever. And so, um, or they keep failing moral checks. Like I think district nine mm-hmm. stands out to me as a great example where like the guy just constantly fails his opportunities to, <laughs> to sort of do the right thing. Like right up until the final minute or two of the film, you know, which I felt like was really great pacing and it's, he only redeems himself at the very, very, very possible last minute. Um, and I, I think that really, sort of stuck with us as kind of like a ingredient in the in the recipe yeah i know when i when i first played darkest dungeon i thought i it it reminded me my my gaming circle my tabletop gaming circle we play a lot of burning wheel and Mm. we've played some torchbearer and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of um you know that idea of like failure pushing the narrative forward like it's it's not about being super powerful it's not about being um you know, super heroic. It's about, you know, how failure, whether it's just a failed role or, or um, a weakness can drive the narrative forward. So it's interesting to see that you don't see that a lot in video games, really much at all. Yeah, like even the, I'm trying to think, you know how it seems like, well, in Western culture a lot, it's it's this really strong power, power fantasy. I feel like um, 
a little bit like say with like Japanese games, there's often kind of a, an initial aspect of you suck now prove yourself. Um, but even that, you know, the goal is you're trying to prove yourself and eventually be like, you know, I'm, I'm the best. And so um, what if you had to accomplish, you know, what if you had to save the world with a ragtag band, you know, it's kind of like dirty dozen in a way. Like if you go back to that classic movie, like I think that really stood out because all of a sudden it wasn't just John Wayne, saving the day, you know, it was like a bunch of criminal, you know, alcoholic abusers that suddenly had to like, you know, um, perform this great mission to save a bunch of lives and stuff. So that's just like super compelling because it puts you in a totally different mindset of how do I accomplish this um, when I'm not the best, when I don't have like everything at my disposal. Yeah. We thought a lot too about, you know, policemen and firemen and, soldiers and you know people who might have Mm -hmm. you know trouble at home personal struggles but they still have to get out and put themselves in these positions where you know their likelihood of something going wrong is much higher than a game developer um you know sitting in an office um but uh you know we could have a fireman who saves some people and then you know has a there's a substance abuse problem and a disastrous home life and and what's the net like arithmetic on on their on their value you know and is that calculation even something that is reasonable to undertake with all the nuance that goes into being a person and obviously we can't replicate that in a video game but we tried to make it chunky and gamey and evoke those ideas Mm -hmm. with like you know like with video game tropes i think that is sort Mm -hmm. of our our goal was always to try to create something that was first and foremost a video game, but we just wanted to suggest this stuff and kind of layer in these ideas to people as they played. And so maybe they start thinking about player agency and, and heroism just a little bit differently as a result mm-hmm. of playing the game. Yeah. A dirty dozen, man. I haven't seen that movie in a while. That's, that's a great example. Yeah. It's like the original suicide squad. Yeah, yeah man, that's I, a solid gold reference. I was like, I, yeah, I, I recently watched it and man, there's some uncomfortable parts in there. Like uh-huh. Telly Savalas's character is like this. Uh, it's bad, but I mean, but that's what makes it interesting. The movie is good, right? Like they're yeah. all flawed and they, um, and I think like, yeah, I mean, we talked, I mean, aliens is such a classic because like aliens or Lord of the Rings, I think you can look both of those and go the people that were expected to do the heroism, the people that were equipped and trained and, they're not the ones, right? Because they didn't have the mental steel. So, you know, in Aliens, of course, Hudson and all the all the uh, the guys in Lord of the Rings, it might be Boromir, right? But then the people that did carry the day are, you know, Ripley or the Hobbits. So it's like you're, yeah, that's the sword arm versus the sword thing again, I think. And um, but how entertaining is it to watch Hudson? Like you watch Aliens and you walk away saying "Game over, man, game over." And so, like, I think we kind of realized there was a lot of entertainment to be had watching stuff go you know out of control a little bit and seeing that you know some of your characters might pull a ripley but a lot of times they go hudson and and that there's still entertainment like a bleak entertainment in watching that like complete de-evolution of a of a squad you know Mm -hmm. yeah and like we've talked about this a lot but i think it's important to mention you chris usually say this is like it's still a game. Like we weren't trying to make a social commentary. We weren't trying to like delve into the human psyche other than, you know, in a game format. And I think like what really, you know, made us want to make it is we thought, man, this could be a fun game where you have to deal with these things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we weren't trying to just do a dissertation or something on, you know, and make you just feel terrible. <laughs> it was really more like trying to set up a, a really interesting tableau where these moments of heroism stick with you. 
Yeah, we yeah. pulled from our like management experience to some degree as well, <laughs> having had a career in video games and both of us had run, you know, like larger teams at some point. And, you know, you can set like targets for people and you can encourage them and you can be hard on them and you can do all these things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you can't control what they're going to do moment to moment. And that, that kind of became interesting. So in our game, you know, when characters get afflicted, they can act out on their own, you know, sometimes in opposition to your wishes as a player or sometimes, you know, they, they can help you along even more. But the idea that you don't own the entirety of the character on screen um, was kind of just uh, fun and refreshing, I think, for us, and really paid out the fact that you're managing people. It's like a hockey coach simulator, you know, <laughs> dungeon simulator. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. These simulator games are so popular now. Um, yeah, uh, they're so yeah, niche really... too. It's like <laughs> they really are. You, you get like a, the John Deere lawn mowing. 2021 <laughs> simulator for northeastern vermont like that's the it's true, wow yeah. <laughs> they have connecticut in the dlc i can't wait they're so popular too it seems like mm-hmm. and yeah i just yeah although dungeon simulator is definitely more up my alley than like trucking simulator or well my kid likes goat simulator a lot and i don't i don't really get, <laughs> i can't get into it um <laughs> it's it's definitely weird um yeah no it's it was it's such an interesting game um how did you come up with just kind of the, uh, the, the whole style and, and kind of, you know, cause it's, it's, it's very different than a lot of other turn-based games. You know, we have games like XCOM, which are, you know, top down, move your players across a map. And then you have, um, you know, like classic dungeon crawlers. And this one kind of, uh, mm-hmm. utilizes different mechanics from a lot of, from, from different, you know, uh, the, the sort of positioning mechanics, but also it's, it's uh, 2d, um, it's very style, very stylistic, very, very, um, the art style is very bold. I'm just curious how it kind of took shape. Well, we had talked about it initially as, you know, I think Tyler had a couple of prototypes where it was like a grid based. Cause that's what you assume when you say, I'm going to make a dungeon game. You kind of like the first turn-based. assumption is uh, yeah. Turn based. You're like, okay, well it's going to be on a grid. No, that's what XCOM did. That's what we're going to do. God damn it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, f- we sort of realized that it gives you a God's eye perspective and and implies a sense of like omniscience on the part of the player and we wanted you down like in the mud with imperfect information i think that's really kind of one of the founding Mm -hmm. principles of of how we look at at darkest dungeon is that you you have to make the best of a bad situation with unreliable information and so this perspective of like way up in the sky looking down on everything really just kind of robbed that sort of uncomfortable intimacy that comes when you're kind of right right down at eye level with everything so that that was one of the big changes and from there we kind of evolved out the the positional uh combat system um but but artistically the you know the art style was like just kind of a mashup of of uh the comics i loved uh growing up like uh, mike minola and guy davis and chris bachelow and some of these other guys that leaned heavy into the blacks um and you know i didn't work like this uh, before starting. It was really just crafted to um, to enhance the, the message of the game and, and the game design as a whole. It's meant to be kind of uncompromising and the hard edges kind of evoke the, the tough choices you've got to make and everybody's getting swallowed up in, in blackness, which is kind of, you know, getting swallowed up in madness. And so it was, there were a lot of deliberate choices that I made artistically to try to reinforce the messages that, you know, we were also trying to pay off uh, mechanically. Yeah, the, the dimensional thing was interesting because 
even you know i re- i referenced D earlier and if you, you know you play D on a map like if you if you actually use figures and it's not just all all in everyone's head you know there's so many tactics that come into play when you've got a 2d map and i was really enamored with that um because then you could have things like flanking or a tank can hold the line, you know, and stuff like that. And then there's line of sight and God knows what else. Um, and so mechanically, since that's kind of like the area I focus on, I knew there was so much that could be done there. But when, you know, Chris was kind of like playing with, hey, what if we see the characters more directly? You know, like, you know, like if you play, I don't know, Diablo or something, the part where you see the most of the character is in the character select. And then they're just kind of this little isometric figure running around. And, um, you know, he's like, Hey, what if, you know, we were just fighting like this and you could totally see the characters. And I was like, Oh, there's, there's not going to be enough tactical depth. Like, but then as we start getting into it and really like running that idea out, um, I thought, Oh, we'll hit a wall tactically. And then, you know, we'll have to re re try a new prototype or something, but it ended up, there was a lot there. Um, and so that was kind of like surprising, but really cool. And like, then for the next X years, like through the game, through the DLC, through whatever, and now even in Dark's Dungeon 2, like we keep finding more ways to like make interesting tactical situations from, from that constraint. And so, um, I think my initial reaction was, was like, oh, this isn't going to work. And it's really cool to see the journey. I just didn't want to draw little heads and shoulders. I was like, this can be boring to draw. I don't want to draw that. (laughs) So, uh. You know, and we had so many good ideas for character classes, I thought, too. And this is just like a great way to get people like, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at these big juicy sprites and kind of getting attached to them, you know, much more so. You can't emote with the top of someone, the crown of someone's head, (laughs) you know. So if the game is about feelings Mm -hmm. and and people, you know, getting stressed and overwrought and all of this stuff, and then all you're looking at is a bunch of bald spots, like it, there's a, Mm -hmm. you know, disagreement there in terms of intent and execution. Um, So, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the 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 profile view really lets you get like a sense of the character, I think, and helps us pay out some of those ideas better. I like the idea of um, constraints leading to mm-hmm. uh, kind of new ideas. I, sometimes I have, you know, I, I have a criticism of open world games just because there's so much freedom. It seems like mm-hmm. there's not a lot of creativity that goes into the actual mechanics or tactics mm-hmm. or design in, in various ways. So that's interesting to just, you know, to think about focusing in cl- more closely just on the on the characters in a, in this situation as opposed to like a the god perspective and how that what what kind of like I guess do you have an example of kind of how that made you think differently about tactical situations and 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 gameplay? Yeah, I mean, you know, specifically like as soon as you're restricted to 1D um you know, you have to in some ways you think a little more abstractly like um, they're not lit- like, I mean, I guess they're literally in a line, but what I was going to say is just because they're in the line doesn't mean we can't have the arbalist at the back shoot her crossbow and hit an enemy without it going through all three heroes. You know, there's still like a little bit of, you got to remember it's a game and that you're in control of the rules. And so sometimes, um, you know, you, you want to give the gist of the situation, but you don't have to be quite so literal. Um, and so, you know, but once we're like, okay, if this is how we're showing it, then you know you realize, oh, okay, well, you can still have a concept of melee attack. You kind of got to be in front. You got to kind of hit the front. And you could have a concept of ranged attack. You generally have to be in the back, and you have to hit the back. And then that immediately leads to interesting questions like, what if guys get out of position? You know, your melee attacker gets pushed to the back, and now they can't hit anyone, and they don't have skills that can hit anyone except for if you give them a skill. You know, you make sure in their kit to assign the skill that allows them to still have a backup. You know, if they're thrown to the back, and so. 
I think like all those rules as you start kind of like building them together, um, create a lot of interesting, you know, tactical situations. And so I think like, yeah, right away, I guess the concept of position is very important. The concept of single target or AOE still matters, um, you know, and then specialty like support, you know, there's all that similar stuff of like tank DPS support, but we, we hate like thinking just purely that way. I guess it just robs like, like Chris was saying about characters, like we'd rather say like, okay, we have an antiquarian. She likes to hunt for treasure. Like what would she do versus like, we need another support or we need another DPS or, you know, like it's way more interesting to try to like um, evolve from the theme up into mechanics, I think, because, and sure, once you have a roster, you're like, hey, we need one more and we don't we don't have enough backliners or something. Sure, that will enter our, our thinking, but we don't really like to start thinking backliner. We like to think, oh, you know, um, whatever, Arbalest, Vestal, Leper, whatever, and then and then kind of let them flesh themselves out. Yeah, I think Plus, for me, the, the big aha moment on on the combat was like coming up with the hag boss where she's got a big cauldron that takes up two slots and she hides behind it and she's in the back and and mm-hmm. because that was the first time where we, we thought about like we'll actually take a character away from you mm-hmm. and put them boiling in the pot while they scream and yell for help um <laughs> and, and like suddenly you know like it's another layer on this positional stuff where we're denying you the use of a character and putting mm-hmm. them in, in jeopardy outside of your control. And then the decision becomes like, well, do I knock the guy out of the pot or do I keep hitting the terrible witch behind him? And then of course, because we're very committed to being kind of uh, assholes about it. Um, <laughs> the way to win that fight is to let him boil to death in the pot and keep focusing on the witch, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And we just love the idea that like, you have to sit there and watch the little guy bark, like I'm burning, help me. And you have to then choose to ignore him. Um, and so I think like that whole fight, like coming up from storyboards up into implementation um, was a great way that like, you know, we just kept kind of, yeah, like onion skinning onto this mm-hmm. like combat architecture that seemed to really bear like way more fruit than either of us thought possible at first. Yeah. Every boss kind of, became its own showcase of something we could do gimmicky. Yeah. And you know, what's funny when you, when you talk about the hag there, it's never really occurred to me, but that's the theme of the whole game in terms of the best way or not the best, the most efficient way to win is not be afraid to quote, let someone boil, right? If someone's too much maintenance, just let them die. Or if someone needs to take the hit, sacrifice them, you only make it harder on yourself in a way when you really want to make sure nobody dies, you know, which is of course like a valid way to play. And we, we want you to play that way also, but. Why are you in that really... tension space though, between yeah. like, you know, cause I saw this thing on Reddit. That's like, this game is a capitalist simulator where you just take people, throw them <laughs> at a problem until they're no more used to you and you cut them loose without any kind of a social net or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's uh well. But you don't feel good doing it, <laughs> or no, maybe you do. Even, I mean, some people. Maybe might. you do. And then you go into business. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Bezos is is playing this game nightly. He's so good at it. He's so good at it. <laughs> like boil, boil. He has a drone play it for him. <laughs> uh, I like that. I hadn't thought about this game as a commentary on on late stage capitalism. But that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does sad me a little bit when people just name their heroes like Leper 1, Leper 2, Leper 3. Like it it does hurt. Like I want to see them named and cared for and then like, you know, it hurts them when they lose them in Darkest Dungeon Mission 2 or whatever. You know, the the second actual Darkest Dungeon Mission. Um, 
And so, you know, we put in an achievement for get get the starting two characters, Reynald and Dismas, to the end, like get them through to the end, the end boss. And, you know, that's kind of like the most extreme example of you need to care about the heroes. And that creates that tension suddenly of of not just being obsessed with winning the mission, winning the quest you're on and getting away with the loot, but the loot is the heroes sometimes, you know, they've got good quirks. You, you've, you've gone through the adventures with them. You're personally bonded with them. Um, that's where some of the real tension comes in. Yeah. No, I hear that. I I find games with permadeath for characters very difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do I. It's hard. It's hard for me. And it's it, sometimes I just can't, I can't even do it. It's just psychologically difficult. <laughs> I think that's like, interesting yeah. though. Cause like we, when we first started, like we both, Tyler and I both agree, we don't love permadeath. Like I, it's not a, it's not a, one of my favorite mechanics of all time. In fact, I don't think I have actually ever really gotten invested in a game with permadeath, but the same way, you know, the game wanted the art to be a certain way. It kind of wanted the design to be a certain way too. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't evoke that sense of you playing like high stakes poker. If you could just, your chips were always safe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of had to embrace like some of these mechanics that are personally, we wouldn't be uh, drawn to by their own virtues, but in the context of what we were trying mm-hmm. to make, they, they were, you know, more than correct. They, they enhanced the, the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A sense of suffering and dread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, where, so where are you guys located? Kind of all over a little bit. Most of us are in Vancouver. Okay. Um, I love Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The office there that he's in is Vancouver. That's where most of the staff is. That's where I was living with Chris or, I mean, I wasn't living with Chris, but we were, you could have. We, we were both living in. Yeah. Why, why didn't you give me a sweet deal on your guest room? Um, <laughs> I was surfing couches for a while there. Where were you? I, you? I, I um, told you what the rent was. You just, that's <laughs> expensive up there. Holy yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, and we try to, we've been trying when we hire, we try to collect people there as much as possible, but um we have some people scattered around. Like I, I now live in Colorado again, where I'm originally from. So I'm kind of a, a weird outlier. Um, Our QA say- guys, Arizona. We've got a graphics programmer in Texas. We have uh, one of our environment artists is in Slovenia. Um, yeah, uh, we're probably yeah. three quarters Vancouver, one quarter scattered around the world. Mm-hmm. So is Vancouver? Um, you you guys had that heat wave. We did. That, yeah. Thanks for asking. Is that, is that yeah. pretty pretty much over now, or is just today, just we're, today, we're down to a balmy 25, which honestly, ordinarily, most summers, I'm like, oh, 25, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But after 37, like, mm-hmm. I'll take 25. So Trying apparently it's over. Fahrenheit. That's hot, though. Yeah. It's hot. It's, it's hot, hot for up there. Like, I mean, I was living in Seattle until this year. And, you know, when it gets in the 80s in Seattle, people start melting. Um, mm-hmm. And it was like 110 or something ridiculous a couple yeah. days ago. Like, that's never even... I don't understand Fahrenheit. What's that? <laughs> I don't understand Fahrenheit. Doesn't water boil at like 11 and a half or something? Like, I mean, it's just ridiculous. But okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fahrenheit is weirder than Celsius, but if you're, if you're mm-hmm. raised on Fahrenheit, then Celsius is yeah. just like, it, the numbers are too close together. You know, like America's so funny. 25. It's so progressive. And then it's like, we do inches in Fahrenheit. Yeah. Okay. And even the English are like, what are you talking about? Like we're doing. Yeah. We're doing other units. Yeah. I'm the cultural translator now between, cause I spent enough time in Canada, but it's very confusing. And I, I, 
I hate trying to run a business that has to deal with two currencies all the time. Like it sounds like such a minor thing, but it literally makes like every calculation twice. <laughs> like you got to do every single business calculation oh, yeah. twice. And then the news is always good though, coming up this way. Cause it's the American <laughs> dollar is always worth more. So, right. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in Vancouver actually. Um, when I was in fourth and fifth grade, my dad was up at UBC. So I I was there and it was, it was really fun. Um, I do remember some of the things I remember are watching political ads that were fear mongering that America was going to take over Canada and make it its, its next state. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and people talking crap about Americans and all their guns, which was pretty funny. Um, but I love both it. of I those fears are alive and well. <laughs> I know it's true. <laughs> um, and yeah, in Colorado, are you in Boulder? Boulder, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I like Boulder. Bo- I'm in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is like Boulder, oh, really? but not as nice. Like <laughs> it's very it's it's very expensive here, but it's just like not quite as expensive as Boulder. Uh, uh, yeah, Flagstaff, I feel like is a desirable place where people try to move to. Yeah, it's up in the mountains, and it's. You know, That's cool. Is it a million degrees and... as well? I went to Tucson once and I'll never go back. <laughs> <laughs> Tucson's great in the winter. Um, we're at 7,000 feet. So seven to 8,000 feet. And the highest peak here is over 12,000. So it's usually oh, pretty nice in the summer, but we had a little bit of a heat wave. We were only getting up to like, I think I got up to 98 and I thought that was pretty insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but Seattle, whatever, 110, 112 is crazy. Cause that's like Phoenix or, or Tucson. Heat. Yeah. And it's a humid. And then also you don't have air conditioning everywhere. Right. You know, like Phoenix, you're like, Oh, people have their little patch of grass that by God, they're going to keep alive. Just <laughs> no matter <laughs> yeah. how many research it takes, but you know, you, you just shuttle in between air conditioning, and air conditioning. And I think that's the thing It's like, you know, friends I saw were like posting they're they're like checking into hotels for a couple of days just to get air conditioning. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's crazy, but um, I didn't realize Flagstaff was so high because Boulder is like fifty three hundred feet, maybe. Yeah. You're, wow, you're way up there. We're you guys up. are yeah. l- losing though. I mean, sea level is the goal, right? <laughs> I don't want to be at sea level right now with all this climate change, man. <laughs> no, God, <laughs> I'm gonna keep climbing. <laughs> I don't want to be anywhere where it's dry because it's just yeah. you know we've had the forest fires and it's yeah it's it's you know I I. I, I keep saying climate change is the final boss, um, yeah. or at least it's going to be a, a big one. Um, well, cool. Uh, so, speaking uh, of it, the world darkest dungeon two. <laughs> yes, darkest dungeon two. Good seg. Um, yeah, nice. I mean, we, the 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 first game is a few years old now. Um, I know you've been working on. Well, there's thunder. Um, oh wow! I, nice. Yeah, yeah. Really so cool. For rain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Although the fire we had, the fire that has been causing smoke everywhere was caused by dry lightning. So that's the downside to it. But mm. um, so anyways, uh, five, you know, the, uh, you guys have been working on the sequel for, for a while now. And it's going to be on early access on the Epic Game Store. Yes. Is the plan? Yep. Yep. And you, you, how long was the first game in early access for? 13 months. Uh, ele- 11 months. We launched twelve. No, no, no. Yeah, oh, crap. it's, it's eleven months American, but it's thirteen Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> yeah, a uh, year. Um, yeah, and that was on Steam, and now you're going to Epic. Uh, what's what's going on there? Um, I mean, I think it's no big secret that Epic's trying to make some real big plays to get get users on their store. Um, 
Yeah, the, our, our biggest community is Steam. I mean, that's that's no secret. Uh, Steam was the first platform we came to and it's um, was our, our most important platform um, for sure on Dark's Dungeon 1. Um, I think that like we staffed up a lot on Dark's Dungeon 2. Um, we invested a lot more direct money into the creation of the game. Uh, fortunately, you know, Dark's Dungeon 1 has done well enough to also allow us to do that. But I think that... Um, you know, it's, it's hard to not pay attention to trends. Um, and, you know, we've lived through situations with other studios where, you know, you're riding high in the hog because you're making Wii games and the Wii is all, is all all the thing. And then all of a sudden Facebook's the thing and then mobile's the thing. And uh, Chris and I have both ridden, ridden some studios down into the dirt or, or projects down into the dirt. And so, you know, we, we also have to wear our business hats sometimes and, you know, the opportunity to sort of de-risk the game in a way was, was pretty attractive. It's not something you almost ever get a chance to do in, in games. I mean, you're kind of only as good as your last game and, um, you know, studios that were on top of the world can be, um, can be footnotes in history, um, after one or two unsuccessful game cycles. So I think, uh, we liked what they were trying to do there. I mean, we still, we still absolutely love steam and valve um but uh and we want to bring the game to as many platforms as we can after epic and we will for sure um but uh the kind of alignment there of what they're trying to do and our chance to kind of you know make a good business decision was was hard to pass up yeah well i mean that is you know i've heard from other developers um just you know even aside from any sort of uh exclusivity deals just the 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 different um publisher or not publisher but um mm -hmm. platform cut the rate is so much better on epic game store than on steam um i've heard from some people that it makes the difference between you know layoffs or, or not so i, I know yeah that's i mean been a driving force 70 to 88 percent i mean we're, we're in an unusual situation where um yeah there's definitely a lot of chatter about um people that kind of developers that struggle maybe with um the various cuts you know that that platforms charge, you know, I guess we've been lucky that we had a game that appealed to a lot of people and that we've never, um, we felt we like we got our money's worth with valves cut, no question. Um, so it wasn't really an issue of that, but, uh, but yeah, you, at the same time, a little healthy competition is not bad for the marketplace in terms of, um, you know, pushing, you know, some, some of those, uh, developer cuts or storefront cuts were set back, you know, when, when Apple, launch the iPhone, you know, that kind of thing. So we definitely keep an eye on trends like that. You kind of have to be able to roll with the changes in the industry, but, um, you know, at the same time, you kind of have to worry about just tidying it up, tidying up your own backyard. And, you know, we employ over 20 people now, which is, which is cool. And, um, that comes with its own set of kind of like responsibility and, and stress, to be honest, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, I think we want the best, the best yeah. product you know we want to make the best game we can and when we we're sort of given the opportunity to to partner with epic it it took the pressure off us literally putting all of our like just letting it ride on black entirely mm -hmm. out of our own pockets a second time and, and you'd arguably have better odds of winning mm -hmm. by taking your life savings and going to the casino and playing roulette with it <laughs> than you would be starting a video game company so um it's wonderful because that works figuratively and literally, but, you know, given, given the opportunity and, and what they presented us with, it, it really allowed us to create like, um, 
a financially secure place for our employees. Um, it allowed us to um, not stress, uh, you know, as directly about not that the game has had scope bloat or anything like that, but if we need something, we can we can acquire that resource, be it talent or or hardware or or whatever it may be. Um, and, and it yeah, it, it insulates us against um, changing changing trends or you know mm-hmm. a, a wholesale rejection of our sequel, um, you know, <laughs> by by uh, by the market. Um, and so we just felt like ethically and you know as business owners, it was. Um, it was really, it was really a no brainer. And I mean, Tyler went down and had a, had a really nice meeting with Valve and, you know, we're, we're, uh, <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're going to bring it to steam and, and to support as many consoles yeah. and other things as we can. And really it's just the early access growth period, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we, we know that people have a lot of strong opinions and we're not trying to tell anyone how to feel. Um, we want them to be able to play the game on whatever platform they want to play it on. And, it, and so there's, there is a time element here. If you want to play the game first, or during early access and be part of that, you know, you got to go to Epic. Um, but if, if you want to wait, you know, it'll, it'll come to you. So, um, and yeah, we, I think it was kind of an interesting thing. Like, you know, the, the debate about say going with a publishing deal, which we didn't do, but mm-hmm. you know, it was often like, Oh, you, you can get funding, you can de-risk, you can help someone, you know, someone can share the risk of, of this game and you can also maybe partner and try to do more. Mm-hmm. But um, Chris and I, one thing we just don't like to compromise on is the creative control. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's a very, it's a rare situation where you get to maintain complete creative control of your game and de-risk it and kind of hard to say no. Yeah. Yeah. We really want to be able to like do the things that we want to do and take the creative risks that we want to take like vampire mosquitoes or the final boss Mm -hmm. being a trek through his like entrail cavity <laughs> you know um all of these things they sound silly but like just the freedom to mm-hmm. to go like the buck stops with with us as far as our our creative mm-hmm. choices and we get to own them and 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 pursue the ones that we're most excited about it's like yeah. there's no price you can really put on that mm-hmm. yeah no i believe it independence is is huge um and i i would say that when epic games first launched the Epic Games Store, there was a lot of controversy around that. And mm-hmm. a lot of people seemed kind of upset about exclusives. But just from my my perspective, and maybe you have a different one, that seems to have died down a lot. Like the initial sort of anger and upset in the gaming community seems to have really sort of, it's maybe a, a little bit of a whisper at this point. Is, is that sort of your impression also? Or do you still, do you get lots of angry emails from fans who are like, how dare you not bring this to steam on day one? I mean, I think our biggest exposure was when we announced that we were going to be on Epic. Um, and we Mm -hmm. did the sort of trailer, um, you know, initially the comments on the YouTube, for instance, were like, there's a preponderance of negative comments about that. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the like ratio has kind of stabilized a bit. I, I guess like, I don't want to tell anybody how to feel, um, or, or tell them that one, storefront is superior that's that's not we're not even making that assertion at, you know at all um so like tyler said i mean the, the game will be available to you at some point at your leisure at your preference on wherever you want to play it but i don't really get or follow the sort of i don't have an allegiance that way so i can't totally wrap my head around that mindset of people who are quite upset um but it's up to them to be you know if that's something they're passionate about that's we're not telling them they can't can't feel that way 
Yeah, I'd say, um, and we don't, you know, we don't like kicking a hornet's nest just for fun. Um, but I do, I do agree with your general assertion that it seems to be less like we, we prepared ourselves for a long time before it was public knowledge for how bad it might be when we announced just because of just from empirical evidence of watching what's happening to other developers. Mm -hmm. But by the time we announced, I think it was, it was greatly reduced from initial. I think there was just an initial shock, right. Of, um, and, um, I don't know, I think as things go on, you know, people kind of settle into their thing. Like there, I, I still see comments where they're like, oh yeah, I'll, I don't want to support Epic. I'll wait. But there's also plenty of comments about cool. I'm excited. Um, and I think, you know, the longer that the Epic store has existed, the more that it'll just be, that is the way things are. There's these, you know, multiple storefronts. And I mean, there's multiple storefronts on so many other things. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, you know, when you're watching, it, you're just kind of like, oh, I hope we don't get impaled on a spike, but um, we're just going to make, uh, we're going to try to make great game, try to make good business decisions. And that, you know, we can control that part. We can't really control like the, the tidal wave of sentiment um, in the sure. broader game industry. And I think we've always done well to sort of just try to deliver, sorry, this sounds businessy, um, <laughs> make a good game and deliver value. But what I really mean by that is like, we do the old business model. You buy the game, you own it, you play it. Like we have not been following the trends of how do we milk the most money out of people. Like we don't get more money if you spend a thousand hours versus 20 hours. Um, so we're not incentivized to make a game like, like Darkest Dungeon one is grindy and, you know, has some, some definite, um, uh, you could, you, you could, uh, criticisms there or whatever, but we're not, we're not motivated to do that to get you to engage longer. Like that doesn't earn us more money. And so I think that we've, you know, we just want to make a good game, sell it to you, let you have fun. We want, we want to stay out of those bigger, like giant issues of like what the, what the business models are and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, we yeah, want to survive the old way as long as possible. Ultimately our direct, our most direct form of communication with people is, is the game itself. It's the product. Yeah. And so really that has been kind of the, the North star of all of our decision-making, you know, even at a business level is, you know, how, how do we make the best game we can create a freedom? Very, very important to us making the best game we can. Um, some amount of, you know, financial de-risking, very important for us to make mm -hmm. the best game that we can. And so that's really our kind of, you know, metric for, for if we go left or right on a, on a particular issue is, Will this help us make the best game we can? Because ultimately, we want the game to be good on Epic, and we want the game to be just as good on Steam and on Switch and on PlayStation mm -hmm. and on Xbox. Um, and so a, a great game in early access over here is going to be a great game at 1.0 over here, you know? But a mediocre game <laughs> you know, on early access is going to be a mediocre game wherever else it travels. And so we just want to focus on yeah. making sure that it's fun and scary and makes you smash your keyboard. <laughs> um so no loot boxes or, or games of service stuff in this no, 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 not selling skins. All right. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, well, uh, it's like always scary to say stuff because then five years later so but I mean, yeah, like we, <laughs> we definitely Darkest no Dungeon loot boxes. Yeah. Uh, but I think we've like um, we, we did really well, I think, with a providing like a variety of different scoped and different price point DLC on, on darkest dungeon one that, that worked really well, but we both really like the model where it's like, this is what you are buying. You can decide mm -hmm. if you feel like that's a good value proposition for you and then you can buy it and then you can own it. And it's not going to keep trying to extract micro dollars from you by virtue mm -hmm. of you owning it. So we're, we're committed to sort of a, 
being as transparent and simple as possible. We just, we don't have like analytics guys, <laughs> you know, like crunching big data. Yeah. It's like, that's Kevin. Think, He's a modeler. Like, <laughs> like it's, there's not like we, um, <laughs> in a way we boxed ourselves in with mechanics in a really good way. Like I said, I think when you have permadeath, I mean, other games may do this, but it doesn't feel right to be like, we're going to kill your characters permanently, but if you pay extra, you can give them good armor and that'll help. Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, it creates a real big cognitive tension, I think, between game design and business. And um, I like the purity of you make a game fun and good, and then people want to buy it. And I don't think in our case, it feels good to try to go further. And, you know, believe me, we want to sell you cool stuff and we'll do that through DLC and through, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of games do this like path of exile, I think is a perfectly respectable business model where you can do a lot for free or you can like make your guy have angel wings and pay a bunch of money. Um, and you know, but it's very opt in. And I think that, you know, that's cool, but Oh man, we're dinosaurs. We like to, (laughs) We're still, we still remember going to the store and buying a game and then you own it and, and play never it. engaging with the developers because social media didn't exist. That's how I grew up. <laughs> right. It's just like, Oh, this is a game. I play this game and then I talk about it on the playground and that's the end of my, Oh, the good old days before. Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I often, you know, I can't get into mobile gaming because I feel like what they do in mobile games is they build a good game that's fun and then they find a lot of little ways to break it so that you have to pay mm-hmm. for it to be it's good. exactly what they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me is just, I find it offensive personally and also <laughs> just not fun. I, I don't think mm-hmm. the game should be built to be broken so that you can pay to fix them. Um, I'd much rather just buy a game like for five ninety nine on my iPad and just play it with none of that. Um, so what about, so tell me about the sequel a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know how much you guys are able to talk about the sequel because it's not out yet, of course, but like where, 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 you know, what working off the foundation of the original kind of, where is your, um, design mindset and your, your, you know, where are you, where are you headed with this, with this game? Well, we sat down in my basement and we both said, and I want to make the same game again. Um, we had a couple of different ideas, but we agreed that simply trying to do Darkest Dungeon 1 with like more heroes or you know different higher mm-hmm. fidelity presentation or um, more dungeons or what may have you um, just wasn't motivating to us creatively, but we still really loved the characters, the heroes, the, the, the world, you know, the tone, all of that. We love the narrator. Um, mm-hmm. And we felt like it was a big, it was a big win for us to sort of be independent, kind of come out of of you know nowhere on our on our sort of first indie title, I guess. I mean, we've worked in games for a long time before that, but um, and to have created, you know, an IP that resonates with people. Um, and so we didn't we didn't want to start that process from scratch. We felt like there was more that we wanted to do and wanted to say mm-hmm. in the same space, and and that we could enrich the the IP itself by virtue of a sequel, but not try to replace the first game. Because after you take mm-hmm. into account all the DLCs and all the different ways you can engage with Darkest Dungeon and the sheer scope, the amount of work that's in there, um, like why try to, to stomp that or, or beat it in a way? Like just let it, let it live and, and, 
and build it a neighbor, you know? And so that was really like, I'm speaking abstractly because I'm assuming Tyler's going to cut in with some like nice details, but um, <laughs> this is like our, our initial mindset was we don't want to compete with what we made, but we want to make more Darkest Dungeon. And at one point we talked about it being in the future, like sci-fi. And then we, you know, we talked about all these different things, but we just came back to the fact that we really love low fantasy. We really like these characters mm-hmm. and we want to do more, but we can't do the same thing again. We don't want to make a hockey coach simulator. What if we made a road trip simulator? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, commercially, you're like, okay, this is a this is smart to make a sequel, but neither of us felt like that was enough reason to do it. And um, I know for me, there was a period there when we were kind of finishing up the last DLC where there was, it's like, I'm kind of sick of working on this game. Um, but it was interesting. It came back really fast to like, oh man, there could be some other cool stuff we can do in this world. And that, I, just speaking for myself, that was really key for deciding to do a sequel um, is getting super excited about. And then once we're like, okay, we're, we, we don't want to do the same thing, but we want to stay in the world. Like, what can we do? And, um, and yeah, we batted ideas around and then eventually settled on this kind of Darkest Dungeon meets Oregon Trail Um you're driving a stage coach, coach across the world uh, to dunk the ring in Mount Doom and and save save everybody, and that sounded pretty cool because I mean I'll steal a piece of Chris's line here, but like Dark Dungeon One is about going down. You can expand on that, but you know you're in a hamlet. It's a very narrow, um, constrained area, and it's all about. I mean, really, the whole conceit of the game is that you've inherited this land, so you've got this parcel of land that is like you're trying to clean out, and it, I thought or we thought it was really cool to be able to like broaden, like everyone wants to know what exists outside the Hamlet, what else is there. And so that was kind of a new, something new we could bring to people. Um, and then it's just so kind of out of left field, like people won't expect we're driving across the world and, you know, and the road trip simulator, like Chris is saying, like allows us to do some cool stuff. Like the theme of a journey is like super um, engaging, you know, again, like Lord of the Rings there where, from the Shire to Mount Doom, it just gives you such contrast. Um, and Chris and I had both watched um, Fury with Brad Pitt um, with the, about the tank crew in World War II. And we thought that was like right in those same like lines of like aliens, like the thing, um, Dirty Dozen, I guess, is in one of the new ones here. But Fury was like really compelling because it was you put four or five people in this tank and they all have to work together. And sometimes they hate each other and they're all different. One guy's religious, one guy, you know, um, and it was just such a compelling story that they still have to function together. And so that, that seemed like rife for lots of, lots of inspiration as far as like how humans interact. Yeah. And just like having been on road trips with friends and with children, um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. we really tried to settle on this idea of like, you've got four kids in the back of the car. So you're, you're driving along and someone's like, I want to go left. And two of them are like, I want to go right. And you got to choose. You pick one, two get mad. One gets happy. The ones who are mad get mad at the one who got happy. Everybody's mm-hmm. bickering. Someone's got to pee. Um, and that felt like um, very much along the like uh, an evolution or, or a natural progression from what we had sort of explored in the first game. Um, but instead of focusing on an individual stress that grows to a breaking point and their response to their own stress, um, you know, it's kind of poetic, I guess, but we we're focusing on um, the relationships between two people in the sequel. Mm-hmm. So people grow affectionate um, 
fall in love for a while, have a falling out, hate each other. Somebody's mm-hmm. jealous of somebody else. And this is all happening in the back of the wagon as you're trying to get across and fight, you know, all these awful horrors and the world's falling apart and, and that kind of thing. So, um, that, that fury post-war yeah. intensity, everybody's under stress and duress. Um, you know, we kept the, the Lovecraftian stuff and the sort of like mm-hmm. cosmic horror and all the rest of it. But the characters like, yeah, the, like when we decided what to carry forward, we decided to carry, and I don't think this is a secret because we already announced some of this, but we decided to carry forward our roster of characters that we already invented. Um, and it was, it's kind of interesting because in the first game, you maintain a roster that may get as large as 30. You may have like four crusaders and three lepers and your A vessel and your B vessel and all this kind of stuff. And um, so you still bond with them, but you have a lot of them, you know? So even when you lose the character you really love, well, I got three more, you know? Um, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean you don't smash your keyboard. But um, in this one, we thought we could lean into the characters even more. And we're doing some stuff there that we're not quite ready to talk about, but um that focus on the individual characters and then with some game design uh, changes that we made. So the first game is this monolithic campaign, which can take hundred hours, depending on, you know, how you play. Um, and this one, we decided to make it more of a true roguelike. So like you, you do runs, you, you start the run, you recruit four characters into the stagecoach and you drive across the world and try to make it to the mountain. And, um, so in that case, you get, you know, one highwayman and one um, and and you don't you don't have a backup. You know, you can't just be like, ah, oh, Dismas one died. So Dismas two is in. Um, and so that really makes it really critical for that run, which can last five hours at a max. So it's kind of a, a long form roguelike, which if you go back to original rogue is a long form roguelike. Like, the, you know, NetHacker Rogue could take hours and hours to beat. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to truly ascend to net hack, but I'm guessing like 10 hours or something. Um, and so in some ways it's more approachable because you're in it for that run and that run might be 20 minutes or might be five hours, but you're not having to worry about a hundred hour monolithic campaign. But at the same time, we reward you for progress. You unlock things, you do all kinds of cool stuff. So if you've played for 20 hours, you have a lot more to work with than someone who's played for half an hour. Um, but we ask you to do those 20 hours in like, bite-sized chunks a little more, um, which is another change we made. So all those things kind of work together to make it different. But the through line is, you know, what really makes Darkest Dungeon is like the art style, the combat mechanics, which we're carrying forward, the characters, the affliction system. So in the first game, you know, stress and personal affliction. Now it's stress and relationships, sound, the narrator. Like we kept all those things that really make it Darkest Dungeon. So it was kind of cool to figure out that we could make a different game that's still is Darkest Dungeon. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. Um, it's scary too. Or- Morgan yeah. Trail is an interesting reference to... <laughs> that is sort of... I, I can see the similarities in those two games, actually, uh, in that horrible things happen and you feel stressed out about them. But yeah, and I think that concept of a destination <laughs> is is really compelling. You know, like Oregon Trail, you kind of get scored on, like, how far did you make it? And, mm-hmm. you know, did you cross the pass by... Or did you leave Kansas by Independence Day? Because otherwise, you're not you're going to get snowed in and die. You know, um, <laughs> and we so had the same we had the same um, mm-hmm. kind of like I just want to call back to like the whole grid based thing in combat and going like okay, well this isn't it's too much of a god's eye view thing. We had the same kind of moment on the sequel where we're like, you know, the, the way to do this simply and cheaply is to have a node map and you just click and go mm-hmm. left and your little icon moves over to the left and something happens. Um, but instead, we literally put you on the road behind an actual stagecoach that you actually drive. Because 
you don't get a God's eye view when you're on a road trip. You can see what's mm-hmm. around you and you can see what's coming up around the corner and you can hope that you're headed in the right direction. Um, so, you know, we have like a, an imperfect mini map and some other things to help you along and make, you know, intelligent strategic choices as to which route you're going to take. Um, but the presentation is similar to the first game where we, we really want you down with the characters living that experience. Um, but it is gamey. It's not an open world game. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you're on tracks and you choose your destinations. You stop at nodes. And we like that punchy, like video mm-hmm. game kind of trope. I think that's like what makes games fun is that they're an abstraction or an iconification of an experience. So um, it was, yeah, I think we, it was cool and, and, and risky and costly to do it definitely. that way. Uh, but we were able to do it. So this is uh, hopefully it, it resonates with people. Yeah, I think like I was going to add to that, Chris, that um, Dark's Dungeon has always been well served by paying a lot of attention to atmosphere and feel, you know, and that's thanks to Chris and his art and Power Up and their and their sound and Stuart Chatwood and the music and Wayne June, the narrator. I'm, I'm name dropping because they're all so critical to the experience. And I think that um, I think the mechanics we have are compelling and that, you know, that's kind of like what say my focus is in a lot of time, but it's the experience that's always done us well. Like the, and so in this case, a node map of just clicking, you know, you know, then you're hundred percent focused on the mechanics, which is cool. But this way we like, we make you soak in it, right? You listen to the music, you hear them talking, you look at the barking, you see what's going on. You like have a little time to anticipate or fear or look forward to. And, and it's a treat to the eyes and all that. So I think that that risk. Of, Thanks to a much larger art team. Yeah. To say now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the spending, um, spending the resources there, is key to the experience. And I think that's, that's why I think, um, I don't know, Chris and I feel like we work well together and then we've managed to really put together a good team. It's like, it's more of a holistic approach where we'll advocate for different things, but ultimately, you know, it's a whole package thing. And, um, that's, you know, those are the risks we've taken with DD2. And I mean, we'll find out, we don't, we don't know how it'll be received, but, um, we've definitely taken some creative and mechanical risks and, but I think we'd be really bored if we didn't. Yeah. yeah and if we're not, and if we're bored or we're not enjoying it, then I think that comes through. I think one of the reasons that people like our first game is because we love our first game. It's not perfect. And we made some mm-hmm. mistakes and you can critique it all, all, all you like, and that's fine, but still love it. You know, still look back on, on creating it fondly. And it's a, it's a real treasure um, to us. And so we want to love this one too, for different reasons, you know, well, that must go hand in hand with the the creative freedom and independence, I imagine. I mean, I'm not to say that people who make, you know, big AAA games at, at much larger pub, uh, publishers and studios don't have fun or don't love their product, but not at all, it yeah. must be kind of extra fun and extra nice. Well, you, you it, it is, but you're more exposed. So like, sure. you know, so there, we didn't have to pitch this to anybody. You know, we didn't have to pitch these changes to, to, to anyone at all. I mean, arguably even to our own, like we can just do it. Um, but that means that when it fails, there's no one to hide behind. Yeah, you have the George Lucas problem, right? Of having so much power, you know, in his case, having so much power and money that, that literally he can over, like he can just make whatever he wants. In our case, much smaller, but um, but yeah, that's, I don't know, that's every, like if you talk to most independent developers, that's their dream, right? I want to make thing, you know, my unvarnished or uh, uncompromised creative vision and it is really exciting until you like wake up in the cold sweats at night going, Oh my God, there's no guardrails. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. No one's going to stop us from driving this thing into the ditch, you know? 
Well, and then also having to handle the business side, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I imagine that, you know, because, because, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I'm an independent artist, but you, you don't necessarily get very far if you're not also good at the business side. Um, so I, I wanted to ask a bit more about the, um, the relationship mechanics. That's interesting. And I know I've played, I've played games with, you know, plenty of games with relationships in them mm -hmm. and with, um, you know, I've even, you know, there's even, uh, turn-based games with permadeath, like, um, Fire Emblem that have mm -hmm. some, some relationship mechanics. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't want that character to die even more now because mm -hmm. they just got married. Um, so <laughs> I already hate losing my characters and now there's going to be these, these meaningful relationships. So was this, did you come up with this to torture players more or? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, we just, we wanted to mm -hmm. challenge ourselves to express something similar to the affliction system in the first game, but make it, um, you know, fresh for the second, um, more, more afflictions with more ways of acting out mm -hmm. didn't feel like fertile creative ground for us. Um, it also didn't really pay out this idea that it's such an intimate environment with only four characters and that they would begin to feel one way or the other about each other. And so it just became a natural kind of like stepping mm -hmm. stone for us once we had established that we wanted, a th this smaller cast, like four at a time road trip style thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, what that looks like is as you play, as they fight, as they drive along, um, they still accrue stress, like, like darkest dungeon, the more stressed they are, the kind of crummier they are to each other. Um, they can build up a sort of a, an affinity towards one another, uh, positive or, or negative. And, um, they can have the, the relationship is tested and, um, they develop a relationship from there, which, you know, as a player, you know, we're, again, we're, we're a video game. So you can mm -hmm. jockey that with some mechanics and, uh, and do your best to kind of keep them in a good place or try to mitigate a, a negative relationship. Um, but it mirrors the, the affliction system from the first game and hopefully is as sort of like ham fistedly dramatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause then like in the first game, we called them act outs where once you're in a relationship, you'll do things outside the control of the player. Um, so we still have that concept. Um, so we used kind of a sem the same framework, but it's definitely been interesting. Like, um, and, you know, in the first game, relationships would have just been too much to keep track of. you got 25 heroes. I mean, that yeah. matrix would be insane. But with four heroes in your stagecoach, it's only it's six. It's six relationships that could possibly form, I think. Um, and that's and that helps tell the narrative again of like, oh, yeah, like every time this person, you know, whistles as they're driving, it drives this person mad, you know, and um, which just I think the difference between I haven't played Fire Emblem in a while, but I feel like a lot of those things were kind of like either scripted or, or, or yeah. defined up front of how the characters relate. So of course we're, we're heavy into RNGs over here. So, you know, we like the emergent narrative of, we don't know how, you know, we're not predisposing like dismissed to like, you know, um, Baldwin more or less than anyone else. Um, but you know, how your story plays out is what will tell that tale. And that's, I think that's the thing is like with DD one and also DD two, like we, we believe it's aside from the fact that we want you to have moment to moment fun, like, if you look back on on a on a run and can relate the story of what happened, oh, these two hated each other, but then I, I got them to the inn and I had them share wine and chocolates, and then one read poetry to the other. Yes, we do all that kind of stuff, <laughs> and then they they started liking each other, and then they bonded, and then like they fell in love, and then they got in this fight, and this guy jumped in and and like sacrificed himself to save the like that's a cool story, and we feel like you'll remember Darkest Dungeon, whereas you know we don't 
We don't have to be the most polished in every single area. We don't have to be the most innovative in every single area. But if we, if we leave you with a story, then hopefully you'll, you'll remember the game. I think it clicked for me the other day because I was, I was play testing and my man at arms and occultist were in love with each other. And, uh, somebody, the, the occultist, I had to heal somebody else who was going to die. And then the man at arms got mad and was like, I thought we had something special. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's that kind of like sort of out of, out of the player's mm-hmm. hands, little moments that kind of was like, oh, and, you know, and I knew that that existed in the game and could happen, but it's still like at that but moment, yeah, I was like happens. stymied because I needed yeah. to get this other character off death's door. And, you know, that man at arms was having a little hissy fit about it. It's kind of cute, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that, that's led to interesting item creation. I mean, in the first game, you know, one of the weird things we did, well, two things that I think were kind of noteworthy are like the camping system. And then the, the, t- the Hamlet treatment, you come back to town and you send him to drink. I mean, that remains our, you know, when I explain the game to someone that's never heard of it, or maybe isn't even video games in video games. And I say, you know, then you got to like upkeep your characters. Like, what do you do to relax? Well, I drink, I watch sports. Okay. Well, you, bring them back, send them to the bar, send them to church, whatever. And so in Darkest Dungeon 2, you know, instead of that treatment, we have you rest at the inn in between regions, and that's where you can use items. And so that's where I was talking about, like, the candles and chocolate and poetry books and and things like that, or, like, sharing a bottle of whiskey. And um, it's – I really enjoy just how mechanics flow out of theme, like I said earlier. And so here you can game the system by, you know – trying to make them share excessive bottles of whiskey. Oops. Someone now is hooked on the booze, just like in the first one. Now you got to deal with this every time you come to an end. So, um, but I think by gamifying that it's still cool, but there's a narrative to it as well. Yeah. All this talk of road trips. I keep, I keep thinking of national lampoons vacation and what kind of video game that would be. Uh, cause everything goes wrong and, uh, the kids at the back. Um, well, it sounds really cool. Uh, it sounds like a really a neat change from the first one. Um, and I like the concept of going, you know, on a horizontal journey rather than mm-hmm. delving down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the whole, you know, in terms of, I just wanted to ask one more thing about the, the roguelike uh, nature. Is it, are people going to be, um, is, is it procedurally generated? Is it, are, are they, is it like mixed, mixed up order of, of scenarios or, or locations? Or is yeah, it I, I think the, sort of, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, keep that's that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, I think the the best way to think about it is like we've taken a bunch of long dungeons from the first game and chained them together essentially. So you'll you'll go off on a leg of your journey in environment A. Um you stop every every uh, region ends with an inn. Um you can do some rest and maintenance there, which is akin to the Hamlet phase in the first game, and then you choose uh, a destination to embark into for the next leg of the journey. And each destination, give you a couple options. yeah, and each one has different enemy factions, different types of loot, different types of considerations in terms of mm-hmm. like, do you need to stack, you know, uh, fire resist going into the, into the city or, you know, you're, you're not really specced for that. So you want to go into the, to the farmlands instead. Um, and so you chain together these, mm-hmm. these regions. Um, and then in the regions themselves, the roots are also procedurally generated each each run so it's not like every time you go to the farmlands um it's the same exact uh Mm -hmm. root choices it's always jumbled up and 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 different so yes so it's it's procedural and we put you know a little bit of hand shaping on things and i i would imagine early access will influence that a lot like Mm -hmm. we will probably continue to refine our generation like that that's a very seems like a very early access thing to do is like continue to refine as we get data and and kind of um, see, see what things are like, but, um, 
but yeah, we've, you know, we like that procedural element um, within like certain narrative like foundations. Cause it's just, I don't know, like I said, we, we kind of lean into the randomness, which I know is sometimes maddening, but it does lead to the moments that, you know, would have been hard to craft otherwise. And, and being a roguelike, you know, that's kind of par for the course. I feel like you've got it. You've got to really lean into the procedural side. Yeah. Um, so you guys, have you, have you announced when this is coming to Epic Game Store yet? We haven't is given that, a that, date, that's uh, a, but it is happening this year. This year. Yeah. 2021 okay. for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay. Yep. Well, and there's only, you know. There's only a handful of left. options left. Yeah. yeah we're yeah, running yeah. out of time. It, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's happening this year for yeah, sure. And, and then the early access the, period. Oh, sorry. The, go ahead. I was going to say, we know the pain of when you say a date and then even if you got to move it a week, it causes such, <laughs> I don't know, it, you know, causes panic, causes uh-huh. chagrin. So we just, we want to, we want to know a hundred percent sure. We have a date in mind, but we, you know, sometimes yeah. it can move because again, we're in control and. We, we try our best though, to just like, to speak outwardly when we know something for a fact. So for instance, yeah. when we, had known that the epic deal was happening we just announced and informed and when we have a date well but we don't want to be like you know it'll be date x and then yeah move it back a week and then realize we actually might need two more weeks to finish up some testing and just expose people to those because that's what game development is quite frankly that happens all the time like this feature is going to be done in a week now it's three weeks later where is it Mm -hmm. um but i think just not exposing people to that level of sort of like a granularity of granularity of the process down. yeah so mm-hmm. you know we're, we're gonna yeah. announce a date when we feel like um that's definitely the date we like tyler said we have one in, in mind and it is definitely gonna ship this year yeah that's good and that's awesome. linked to early access i think you were gonna say like i don't know we we liked the year long of, of dd1 i mean it felt like um I don't know. It's a, it's a good solid thing that like constraints again, you know, like if you just say, I don't know, we'll transition when we're ready. Like you might spend five years on it. And I think that um, we like the structure of like figuring out what your play field is and doing that. And then we'll move into, and if there's an audience then I'm sure we'll do DLC, if, if enough people buy it to make it feel like anyone would care, then we'll, we'll do DLC. But I think that year longish time period is, is pretty good. I mean, we did for the first game, we, we launched, the 1.0 after a year in early access. And then we added, you know, more monsters and we added town events and we added um, uh, a radiant mode, which is a little bit more of a uh, mm-hmm. permissible way to play mm-hmm. the game. We added all that afterwards. And those weren't even DLCs. They were just like updates to the base game because we felt like, oh, the game would really benefit from this. This is something we always wanted to do, but we couldn't quite get to it in early access. And it is modular. Like the town events, for instance, were a great thing. We talked about them during early access. Um, but it's such a modular system that can exist without having its tendrils into every little bit mm-hmm. of the rest of the game that it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect candidate for, for like a free update, um, po- post launch. Um, so I'm sure we'll probably follow the same thing. Cool. Well, um, I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about both games and the weather and everything else. And yeah, um, I really look forward to, to darkest dungeon too. It sounds great. Um, and yeah, I guess, uh, stay cool and thanks for being <laughs> on my, my podcast and, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah. yeah. It's nice. fun for us to roll details out and see how people respond. Cause for a long time, totally. we, we had to keep it totally under wraps and, um, 
you know, what, the, what opened kind of the floodgates for us is PC Gamer did a feature on us last month. And that was kind of our, okay, now we can talk, now we can share, now we can show. And um, we'll show more. Been... I see a lot of c- cries out for, for footage and, and stuff oh, yeah. like that. And, and we'll, we'll build to it again. It's just, we want to, <laughs> we want to put our development process first in our, in our marketing sure. dog and pony uh, second, a, a little bit, you know, in that sense. So That's we'll get there. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It's never, never a good sign when a, when a game developer or publisher focuses on marketing instead. Yeah. It's uh, a slippery slope. It's like, here, we're going to show it. We're going to show a teaser. Well, then we want it to look really good. So we should stop mm-hmm. working on all this other stuff and get everybody working on the teaser because we don't want it to look bad, right? It all comes mm-hmm. from a good place. But then you realize once it's out, everyone's like, yeah, it looks cool. Everyone's tired from the, from the effort to ship the teaser. And you're like, we're behind on all this other stuff. And we would have been mm-hmm. better served by not doing it at all in the first place. Um, anyway. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, I, mean, we're in a very, I was going to say we're in a very fortunate position and we, we, we know because we've lived the other side of it. Like when Dark's Dungeon won, you know, no one knew of the game at all. And so we had to market it from the ground up. I mean, we're in an extremely fortunate position that like we don't have to do the marketing the same way because we can literally just uh, send news out easier. You know, we can it, it's easier to reach more people right now because people are watching us. And I think that that does directly mean we like, we get to have a little bit less marketing overhead, you know? So like, if, if you want to think like a certain amount of effort just comes off the top for marketing, um, comparatively percentage wise, I think it's smaller, um, just because we, people are watching us more closely. We don't, we don't have to like completely surprise them in an innovative way. We just have to show the product and hope that it stands on its own. And I think, um, we're very much in the trench run now, which is kind of exciting because, um, it's, it's less now about the academic questions about what we're making and more about just finishing it. Um, so that that's exciting and stressful because at the same time, you're like, you know, you we're making this kind of car. We can't like suddenly make a pickup truck. Um, so the game is going to survive or, or, or or fail now based on its merit, its own merits. And it's just up to us to try to finish it in the best way that we can now. Yeah. It's interesting. I just thought of this as you were talking about this. Um, when Darkest Dungeon came out, compared to now in terms of just the quantity of games being released, even though it's only been a few years, yeah. from, from a perspective of someone covering games and reviewing mm-hmm. games, it's shockingly different. Because wow. when, when Darkest Dungeon came out, you know, it, I, I, I feel like I could hear about games without feeling overwhelmed by just the quantity mm-hmm. of games coming in. And now... It's a totally different landscape. I mean, there's so many, especially on PC. With, with you used Steam to be able to track that. them. Even indie games used to be able to kind of mm-hmm. be like, oh, that was that one I saw. But now I've just accepted that I, I just won't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like 40% of the games that get made, I just won't ever hear about them. Yeah. Just or you'll, you'll see many. something and you'll forget 20 minutes later. <laughs> yeah. it's So yeah. I guess that's, you know, I, yeah. I, I guess when it, I guess, I guess my only observation there is that was good timing. <laughs> I guess, you know, but also, also Darkest Dungeon has a very distinct look, which I think certainly helps because, you know, not you know there are a lot of games where you could just sort of like I you can't tell the difference, but Darkest Dungeon has that very distinct art style, which certainly serves it well. Um, yeah, yeah. On the timing front, the weird thing is um, when we were launching, we were like, oh, I wish we had been a few years earlier, right? Like there was a point where <laughs> mm-hmm. if you got on Steam, period you were guaranteed a certain amount of just eyeballs because there weren't that many games and it was all hand curated. You know, this is before green light and stuff like that. And so um, it's, it's weird how perspectives always change, but it's like 
even when we launched, there were so many games that it's a long shot. Like, I guess that's the thing is like the games business, like Chris was saying about the the casino kind of thing. But, you know, in 2015, you were still far more likely to fail than succeed. Now you're still far more likely to fail than succeed. But it's like, so it's like, you know, you go from having a 5% shot to a 2% shot. So that's a big deal. But, you know, it's still, you, you were more likely, you were way more likely to fail anyway back then. So it's kind yeah. of a strange, uh, but yeah, the, the sheer number of games is it's incomprehensible, but, um, and they all look so then, good. <laughs> even back then it was hard. You know, it was hard to stand out. It's um, so stressful. Yeah. Just even artistically. I'm like, Oh yeah. my God, look at what they're doing. How? <laughs> yeah. The qu- I guess that's the thing is the quality keeps rising too. Yeah. It's not just the number of games. Like, and I want to be happy games- for them. Yeah. but I resent them because of my own insecurities in a way. I think even just gamers are stressed out by the amount of games, you know, they don't yeah. have to, to make them or cover them, but it's like, just, you know, I joke about, you know, backlogs all the time. And I think everybody's kind of in that, yeah. you know, it's the steam summer sale right now, yeah. uh, which I think darkest dungeon is on sale, yep. but yep. Um, you know, it's like, Hey, let's buy a few games <laughs> that will maybe we'll play in a few months or years, you know, because it gets so yeah. much. But it's it's a you know what what a struggle, huh? Too many games. It's a it's, it's a challenging world. time for all of us. Yeah. yeah, it is an embarrassment of riches, but it is you know it's like the the app store where you know not, yeah. it's already been many years ago where like it was almost impossible to stand out unless you played the certain game you know played it a certain way. But one thing I still love about I guess indie PC game development is there still is room to just be your own way. Mm. You know, it's like totally Oberdin, like, wow, like just stands mm. out cool. But you know, like, whereas if you want to get to the top of the Apple of the iPhone, you know, bestsellers chart, like you have to follow a certain business model. You cannot deviate. You have to have tons of, uh, you know, have to have a money cannon for user acquisition, whatever. I still do love that. Although there's so much competition that someone makes a great game, like it can stand out and it can become a runaway hit. You know, I'm thinking of like mm. Valheim with like, yeah. I had never even heard of the game. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, in, in two months sells more than, yeah. I don't know, like some multiple of how many copies we've sold over six, seven years. And we were a hit, like a runaway hit. Right. So yeah. it's, it's weird that the, the market is growing too. You know, I think like the, the, the number of games are growing, but the number of consumers keeps growing as well. And so the, the threshold of like how big a hit can get still keeps growing, which is, so it's like this weird perpetual motion machine. I, I don't know. It, 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 it's hard to understand, but either way, you're, you're just accepting that you're taking a swing at home runs and you're probably going to strike out, but I don't know. We're, we're risk takers. So I guess that's, that led us down to this path, you know, you can get down this rabbit hole of trying to like optimize for the market. And maybe it's because I'm more art and intuitively based, but I'm just like, I just want to make something I think is cool. Yeah. You know, and then let the chips fall, fall where they may yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I mean, I, what else can you do, right? If, if that's kind of it. Like, you know, you can, you know, you can take all of the reasonable steps and precautions. And certainly we've done that, you know, like we're both enjoy talking about our business strategy and that kind of thing. But really at the end of the day, you know, if you, if you tick the boxes and you're being reasonable and you're watching your scope and you've got a great team, which we do, um, and you believe that what you're making is cool. I mean, that's all you can really control and whether or not it finds an audience is sort of just, that's up to the audience and the timing and what happened the week before and what came Mm -hmm. out in the last month. And Mm -hmm. you can't control any of those things. Um, I think there was, it wasn't there like we did a DLC and then XCOM's DLC got moved into the exact same day or week or something of (laughs) whatever. Like you just, you can't, and we're XCOM fans, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. 
but you just can't control that stuff. And I realized that maybe it's coming from a bit of a position of privilege because, um, you know, our, our lives aren't on the line, you know, maybe in the same way uh, as they used to be, but it comes from genuinely a, a desire to just make something that I'm excited about. Cause if you're not, if you're not excited about the making of the game and you're pinning all your hopes on the result that the game will generate for you when it's released, I think, um, I think you're going to be disappointed or, or hurt or unfulfilled, you know? Well, there's higher percentage plays probably to take that money and put in something else, but you know, that's, we're not in the restaurant. Well, restaurants are even worse. But, we should not be um, in the restaurant business. No, <laughs> no, but we, you know, we, we love, but we lived that path, you know, where people were like, um, you know, that early access launch was getting pretty dicey. And I think that, um, it, it just, uh, oh, that it ties into that earlier conversation of like, yeah, look at the chart of how many games are released. Look at blah, blah, blah. And if, and if a partner comes along and says, Hey, we like what you do. We like what you did last time. And we're willing to help you, you know, pay the budget of your game. It's, it's really hard to say no. And because we don't believe that we're graced by God to make hit games, you know, like every time, like it'd be so arrogant to be like, well, we threw a two on it. It should sell twice as much, you know, like let's all buy boats, crash those boats and buy second boats because we're so (laughs) sure of our success. Um, yeah, yeah, we got to be a little bit more humble than that. I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's just the, the course of wisdom also. Um, well, we'll I, yeah, I wish you, uh, I wish you the best of luck. Um, it, Thanks, it sounds exciting. I, I love the concept. I uh, can't wait to try it out. And um, yeah, keep me posted on, you know, updates and news and cool. the uh, eventual early access release date on the Epic Game Store. Um, yeah, yeah we'll I guess for listeners. PLA, yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. I would appreciate <laughs> that for sure. Um, and I, I don't know this. Uh, I think the Steam sale will still be going on when this podcast drops. So cool. Um, I'll put a link into the, well, I'll put a link into the steam page. Yeah. Anyways. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we, yeah. We've been running some pretty steep discounts this, this year of like the game's gotten as cheap as maybe 80% off. Well, so it's like, okay. um, you know, if you've been on the fence, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it sounds so, so corny, but I mean, it really is ridiculously cheap now. So you might as well grab it and give it a try. And, uh, you know, you were talking about so many games, like, I'm ruthless now. If I try a game and it doesn't hook me on to the next one, because, you know, you're really, it's oh, not yeah. like the old days where you buy the one, the one game for your Atari and that's what you got for the month. So, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. You oh, I games know. for $3 now. So it's crazy. It, it's crazy. I, I just, I remember as a kid playing like on the NES and whatnot, and you'd, you'd really play one game, one or two mm-hmm. games constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and like my kids have all the games. <laughs> <laughs> And they don't, you know, they don't have any commitment to beating any of them. Of course, half of them you don't beat anyways. It's just, you know, yeah. Minecraft forever, <laughs> Fortnite. But uh, yeah, so yeah, I guess, you know, old school, single player with a campaign mm-hmm. that you can actually beat. That's that's cool. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Well, cool, guys. Um, Thanks, Eric. Thank you. And um, I'm just going to ask you to leave your browser open for a little bit after okay. I hit stop here, mm-hmm. um, just because... Cool. This, this software. All right, so that's Darkest Dungeon, Darkest Dungeon 2. Uh, thanks to Tyler and Chris for being on the show. Uh, thank you all for watching. Uh, this, this podcast comes out uh, Tuesdays for Patreon subscribers. That's a couple days early. And 
two days later on Thursdays for everybody else. So thanks for watching or listening. Uh, appreciate it. Check out uh, my Substack, diabolical.substack.com. Check out my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash C slash Eric Kane. And of course, patreon.com slash Eric Kane. Uh, and check out Darkest Dungeon on Steam. I believe it is still on sale for just a couple more days. Dirt cheap. Give it a, give it a whirl. All right. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Peace.